Is this a long intro or do I does it start right away? <laughs> oh, they're they're gonna start singing. Here I come to yeah, here find we go. myself, catch the tide, looking for a piece at the end of the Wait, this is a group, right? There's yep. multiple there's multiple okay. So this is EDM, right? EDM? Yeah, EDM, trance, I guess it depends on how you classify it. Mm. Okay. I really I like, like her voice. Yeah, it's a very soothing. I feel this study music low-key. <laughs> if the thing doesn't go too stoops, you know? Okay, um, great. So that song is called Home by Above and Beyond. If you wanted to go ahead and check that out. But we have a very special guest for today's episode, there's some um, drops here. We have Michael Wong in the building. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. And Rebecca, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for asking, Ali. How are you doing today? I'm um, great. Thank you. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you. Um, we know it's a bit busy now, uh, so we really appreciate you uh, stopping by. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. So introduce a little bit about yourself, what courses you teach, um, who you are. <laughs> Do you want the short version or the long version? <laughs> long version. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so maybe I'll kind of talk about my how I got involved with BHSC. And so I joined BHSC. It's going to date me a little bit. So 2013, yeah, fall 2013 was when I first joined BHSC. And the first course I taught was actually a course that's no longer around, sadly, um, psychobiology, which I think if you were in third or fourth year, you would have taken. Cups that are also- <laughs> yeah, just had to sneak that in there, my bad. Sorry, continue. <laughs> rest in peace, psychobio. <laughs> yeah, rest in peace. So I, that was sort of my first exposure. Uh, to BHSC and I, and I taught uh, psychobiology, which is a lecture-based course that examines the, the physiological mechanisms that underlie behavior or psychology. Um, but I won't, I won't go into too much detail into all the different courses I've taught over the years, um, but that was my first exposure to BHSC and uh, I've been part of the program. And then I taught for the program for five years after that and I was involved in pretty much all aspects of its curriculum. So I was um, part of the first year curriculum group facilitating first year inquiry, um, part of the child health specialization. Um, but after, after five years, um, I decided to look for opportunities elsewhere uh, for a number of different reasons. One of which was because I did both my undergrad and my PhD at McMaster. And so I wanted uh, a bit of a change in scenery. So that led me to move, uh, actually, so I ended up getting a position in the University of Wisconsin in the United States. And I was there for about two years. Um, and after that, I, I came back to Canada, because I missed Canada for a number of different reasons. And I was an education consultant for a year. Actually, I started at a, and that was only last year, 10 days before the pandemic. So I was an education consultant at uh, Conestoga College in Kitchener, 
where I essentially consulted uh, with faculty and upper administration about teach it, best teaching practices. And I, was, I helped transition to college to uh, remote learning during COVID-19. Um, but actually, so towards the end of last year, um, I was really missing being in the classroom and with students. And so um, an opportunity presented itself and I found myself back here in McMaster and with BHSC. And I've, I, I have to say that I, I couldn't be happier. So I'm so happy to be back, not only just in Canada, but also back with the BHSC community where it's probably one of the only jobs I felt like I belonged and I felt, you know, it was sort of a home for me. Wow, I can't believe you betrayed Canada and went to the U.S. <laughs> for two I, years. I think, I don't know, I feel as a, I'll speak for myself, I feel <laughs> growing up in Canada, I've always sort of romanticized the U.S. and maybe right, that, right. I don't know, from the media, maybe because, you know, they have access to all the great Amazon things and... Right. <laughs> Oh my gosh, true. Even though, yes, yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Ali. No, I was going to say, even though we live like right beside each other, our cultures are like kind of similar. Like we speak the same language, we have similar interests. They're completely different, like worlds. Like the day to day interactions are completely different. And I haven't even lived in the US. I just go there sometimes to visit my dad who works there. So it's like, I totally get it. Like I, I, I can understand how different it could be. Um, can I, where should, can I ask where, where is your dad located? Yeah. My dad is in Mississippi. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit in the South. I, I, and even this is the thing, Rebecca, I'm telling you, and Michael knows this by now, but like, depending on where you are, like there's a North, there's a West, there's a East, there's a South, like there's different places within America that are completely different. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So people interact with each other differently. Whereas in Canada, I feel like, yeah, every city is different, but it's a lot of, a lot of the same things that goes on. At least maybe, maybe it's because we've been in Ontario most, maybe that's why, I don't know. I haven't been to British Columbia, but yeah, that's how I feel. I feel like there's way more diversity over there too. I was just going to say something I noticed when I, when I was in Wisconsin is how much the states differ from each other. And I think maybe what kind of contributes to that is the states were a lot smaller, right? So if you yeah. look at the size of Ontario versus the size of most states in the US, I think you can fit five or six or maybe even more states in Ontario yeah. geographically. Yeah. And, and most so, of our yeah, most of our populations here too. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was interesting is that I was on the border of Wisconsin and Minnesota, and the Minnesotans were in many ways very different from the Wisconsinites and which were very different from people in Illinois. Give us specific examples. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if I want to go into politics right now. Um, maybe I won't go into politics. Um, I, I felt I noticed um, the, the individuals I interacted with in Minnesota uh, were more vocal and they were more sort of outspoken and people in Wisconsin, to me at least, my, again, my experience, um, it felt they were more reserved. And so it was really interesting because, because I was on the border, uh, sometimes when I met someone, I would kind of play a game in my head where I would guess, are they from Minnesota or are they from Wisconsin? Um, and I would say I was right like 70, 80% of the time. 
That's crazy. Wow. That's crazy too. So going to um, the U.S., you probably had a lot of, you know, thoughts uh, that you've had about living in the U.S. Were they true? Were they false? What was your favorite parts of living over there and your least favorite parts? <laughs> I'll start with my favorite first. Um, it was, it was, I think, in some ways, in many ways, it was fun to be like the token Canadian there. So it was, uh, I met, of course, I met a lot of individuals there, but something that kind of opened my eyes was that we're so in tune to American culture, but, and we, you know, we know so much about their political system um, and about their culture in general, but it often wasn't reciprocated. So when I met people in Wisconsin, uh, there were very few of them who had any concept of Canada. Um, so it was interesting that, you know, they, so for example, and maybe because they are a superpower, right? So, um, and I think that, you know, have, has something to do with it, where I was asked who, who our president was or how many states there are in Canada. Um, so that was really interesting to me. And then when I said Ontario, um, some people knew, of course, but many people didn't know that it was a province. And they, you know, they would assume it maybe was a, a city or a certain region. Um, and so when I said it's a province where Toronto is located, everyone knows Toronto. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say they definitely know Toronto. And <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that was kind of fun to and, and, and compare and making differences, uh, talking about differences between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, was also really fun um, when I was teaching some courses, some of the students that I worked with or that I was teaching uh, didn't understand some of my Canadian slang, which I didn't even know were slang at the time. So I'll tell you a story where um, I had a student who was asking, I won't go into the specific specifics of the question, but this one particular student asked me a question and I made a comparison. I said, oh, it's kind of like your toque. And he looked at me with this puzzled look. And then I looked at the entire class and I could tell no one knew what I was talking about. And then, so I said to him, I said, I looked at the entire class. I said, you don't know what a toque is, do you? It's a what very I, Canadian thing, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. For some reason, I thought it was a general term that was given to like a beanie or a hat. Yeah. So I had, to I had to explain to them that, it's, you know, what they call a beanie or a hat. <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah. Does. They are oblivious to our culture, by the way, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. Mike was completely right. They're like <laughs> super oblivious to what's going on. They barely know anything about. Like we know so much more about them than they know about us. It's because it's global crazy. news. Global yeah. news is always like American news. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very interesting. And of course, you know, this is a generalization because I didn't meet mm -hmm. some individuals who knew a little bit about Canada. Um, mm -hmm. The other interesting thing was when I had a lot of questions about our healthcare system. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people would ask me, so can you, you know, what is it like to have, you know, healthcare in, in Canada? Um, and I, so without naming people or specifics, I, I had met individuals who had over $100,000 in debt because of health-related reasons. Um, and I, I even had um, a colleague, for example, who, so he joined at uh, roughly the same time I did, and um, 
And what was really interesting to hear, and I, I guess I didn't think about this as a Canadian, is he had, so he had sprained his ankle, but he was worried that it was actually broken. But he refused to see a physician because of how much it would cost him. And so he was basically hoping it would heal on its own and it wasn't healing and he was in pain. And so when I first met him, he was limping and, and essentially on crutches. Um, but as soon as he got hired and health insurance kicked in, um, then he finally got it taken care of. But that was something, you know, as a Canadian, I feel like we would just go see a doctor and get that treated. So it was sort of an eye opener for me. Yeah. How much would a broken ankle cost in the States? I don't, I don't know the cost. Um, I saw, I don't know. The only, only my, my only experience with the healthcare system was I, I saw a, a general practitioner or family doctor there and it cost me, it, I had health insurance. So most of it was reimbursed. Um, but it was 350, I think 350, 400 us dollars for about just under an hour. And yeah and imagine you won't even go do checkups you only go to the doctor if something severe happens yeah just because you don't want to be paying those yeah you know and we don't even think about it michael is completely right mm -hmm. that's crazy their whole like the whole system is completely different i feel like like they profit off of a lot of different things than like the canadian government for example does and you know yeah. stuff like that do they do they have both private and public hospitals or only we did this in health policy remember? i know i remember <laughs> this i forgot okay <laughs> we should be knowing this <laughs> i feel like bad students right now wait michael i was gonna ask you what, what what's the what's americans reaction when you tell them you're you're from canada and you're born and raised in canada did they say like do they think can oh, we, before that before that can they tell that you're canadian just by your accent <laughs> uh that's a good that's a good question um I actually, most people, when I, I don't think Canada is on most people's mind. So when I started teaching or when I started talking, people didn't know where I came from. Um, I, I asked actually a few, a few students that I was really close with. I said, did you know from the way I was talking that I might've been not from the U S so the one thing I think about the U S and I think there's some of this in Canada too, but there are a lot more regional differences in a lot more in, in terms of western accents there are a lot more of that in the u.s than in canada i feel yeah um even within the midwest where i was there was a very wisconsin accent and a very minnesotan accent and you can also tell from the slang that they use so for example in wisconsin they called uh some people would call a water fountain a bubbler and i thought it was a soda stream the first time i heard that what does that mean bubbling it means water fountain Oh, water fountain. Oh, whoa, that's so different. Yeah. How, how did they come up with that term? <laughs> I think there was a company in Wisconsin, from my understanding, from what I've been told, I didn't do my uh, research into this, but um, there used to be, I think, a company that made water fountains that was something that was called, the name sounded like bubbler or something. Um, but yeah, most people wouldn't assume I was, a, I was a Canadian. I got, uh, some people thought I was actually from Chicago um they said i have an accent that reminds them of a larger city so mm -hmm. chicago i got minneapolis i got a few times because i was pretty close to minneapolis um reaction was um whenever they heard then they started hearing my accent so 
the way I've pronounced words have shifted almost entirely, I feel, <laughs> since I've moved to the US. So I'll give you some examples. The first time one of my colleagues uh, called, me, called me out, I'm putting this in air quotes, uh, we, we joke about accents. So I apologized to her and I said, sorry, in a very <laughs> Canadian way. And so she just made fun of me that one day. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't, I no longer say sorry because of that. And now I pronounce it sorry. Or tomorrow, I used to say sorry about tomorrow. <laughs> but I don't do that anymore. And I feel because, you know, I, I spent time there and, you know, the Canadian accent was mocked by every American that I met. Um, I feel my, my pronunciation of some words have shifted. So I would say, for example, about now instead of about. <laughs> a boot. Or a boot. <laughs> yeah. So would you, say, would you say in general, going to um, the US and living there for a, couple, for a couple of years, has it kind of shifted your mindset a little bit, how you think about certain things? Even like the teaching experience, like did it open your eyes into like, okay, the student students here are different in this way or students here are different that way and just how everything is run did it kind of shift yeah. how you used to think oh yeah i think definitely um so i i spent my pretty much aside from traveling I, i've done a, quite a bit of traveling but aside i haven't really lived anywhere else before aside from you know southern ontario um so i was born and raised in brantford and which is only 30 minutes from hamilton so, you know, most of my life was in this area. And even though I traveled, I think maybe the exposure wasn't long enough. I didn't interact with enough people that I was able to see, you know, of course I learned things when each time I travel, but it's being immersed in a place for two years that I think shifted my thinking and gave me a lot of perspective about myself and about the world. Um, I'll talk about the education system first. And what was really interesting, and this is something I, uh, I learned while, while working and teaching in Wisconsin is, and I think this is probably true even for a lot of Canadian schools as well, it's very didactic. So there, it was predominantly lecture based, a lot of multiple choice questions. And so some of the assessments that I would typically use in BHSC, um, some of my colleagues, for example, thought it, it was too out there for lack of a better word. And so, which was to me really interesting because they were worried that the students would not be receptive to a new way of learning or a new way of being assessed. And so I essentially took psychobiology and I transitioned it to a fourth year course called, called Cognitive Neuroscience. And I remember the reaction of one of my colleagues and said, you don't have final exams? And it was really interesting because to me, that second nature, I, you know, I haven't given them a multiple choice final exam in so long. So I just kind of naturally took that with me. And, but it, it wasn't well received by a lot of my colleagues, my teaching philosophy, inquiry-based learning, problem-based learning wasn't very well received um, by my colleagues. Um, and, I was and I was questioned a lot about why I was teaching the way I was teaching. But what was really interesting was the students loved it. So I was doubting my own teaching for a good half of the semester. I would say it didn't, I wasn't really comfortable 
with my teaching style until November because so many people in the university were teaching very didactically, very traditionally. Mm-hmm. And so when the student reception came back very positive and the students, um, even in some of my comments, for example, students would say, this is the first time I've never had to write uh, in a class, never had to write a final exam and how refreshing it was to actually be challenged to come up with something. So one of the, one of the projects I had them do was to generate a new type of neurotechnology. So take what they've learned and to pitch a new idea. Um, and it was a project that the students really liked. And so since because of that positive uh, feedback from the students, then it caused it, a shift in a lot of my colleagues in questioning some of their pedagogical techniques. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think there's actually, hasn't there been a lot of research saying that these large group lectures, they don't facilitate learning for students in the best way as well. Um, and that like deeper um, learning where you actually apply what you do actually helps you um, learn better for the students. Is that um, a reason why you like um, this way of assessing better as well? Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. And I think something that I've also noticed is when I, the students that I worked with in in fourth year, um, when they became receptive to the idea, it was so amazing to see their ability to critically think and their ability to generate new ideas, but they were so resistant in the beginning because it was something that they weren't used to. Um, but I think about, you know, the comparison to, you know, to, to you as students in the BHSC program, third and fourth year students, how you're presented with a problem and it's almost second nature. You know, you don't, you don't ask for a lot of information and you go out, you explore, you find information, you develop your own research question and you do the project. Um, whereas I felt I had to do a lot of scaffolding, uh, even in, in, in fourth year for, um, for my students in Wisconsin. And but by providing that scaffold, right, helping them along the way, and you know when they when it got time for them to actually do the project, and I give them some feedback, um, they start to they 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 learn to love the ability to direct their own learning and the ability to not be told what to do and to come up with their own ideas. So something I learned moving there is um, how much, even though I valued it at the time when I was part of BHSC, but how much more I value it now the problem-based learning and the inquiry-based learning. Um, and I've, you know, I have molded it and I'm a, I'm a firm believer of student-directed learning and inquiry. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I'm speaking for all the students, but I know a lot of the students that are my friends that are in the BHSC program, they like comparing electives that they take or whatever, like we understand better if we don't have to just memorize 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 recall 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 it's a little bit better embedded in our mind because we utilize it we utilize whatever information we're given and then we have to like think about it and then we have to apply it to a certain situation rather than who can remember the best you know a lot of the information that i've retained is from courses like um psycho bio is one of them cell bio is one of them all the inquiry yeah those are all the things that i completely remember and guess what the ones that i don't remember were like the language classes that i took that i had to like recall certain things or um what was the other one um some of the some of the biology courses that are not in bhsc that i just had to recall information or chemistry i don't really remember a lot of the things and i think that is because of the teaching style 
And it's also like the projects that we do, they're all like personal to us. So obviously we remember them better than just slides on a content. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. I do I really appreciate um problem-based learning as well. Yeah. Would you would you be willing to go through an experience like that again where you go to a completely new place and try teaching there for a bit and then you know maybe coming back maybe staying there who knows but would you be open to doing that again after um after going to the u.s i think okay so i think something else i learned about myself is how much uh, i took southern ontario for granted mm. um i used to think that you know i'm so interested in you know living abroad for a little bit right, right. um i think something I've learned is I think Southern Ontario is a very special place, which I, I, don't, I don't think I gave it enough credit when I left. Um, so if I were to go somewhere else, I think I would be very calculated in where I go. <laughs> okay. um, I think in Southern Ontario, something I didn't realize was how many large cities there are in Southern Ontario, right? So if we look at, you know, Hamilton is what, 600,000, Toronto is mm -hmm. like one point, what? One point something million. Yeah, over one million, yeah. Yeah, like Mississauga, like almost a million or maybe even a million. But, you know, all these cities that are actually quite large and in the Midwest, I think the city I was in, La Crosse, was the fourth largest city in the state. And, and that was just behind Milwaukee and Madison and maybe Green Bay. But the population was around 75,000. Um, Milwaukee, which is their largest city, was, is the size of Hamilton, so about 600,000. Um, and then even when you look at Minnesota, I think Minneapolis is the size of Mississauga. And then Rochester, which I think was their second or third largest city, is a population of about 100,000. So there are a lot of rural areas in between. And I'm, I like to call myself a city person. <laughs> so to me, there wasn't a lot to do. Um, at least I'm sure other people have, you know, based on your interest would, I missed, you know, restaurants and I miss going to a show, a play, a sports event. Um, I am also not a football fan, so, <laughs> uh, I'm a Raptors fan, but I'm not a Green Bay Packers fan. <laughs> <laughs> Raptors, yeah. Didn't yeah. Raptors play the Milwaukee, uh, in the year they won? Yeah, I was actually, it's funny, I was at the, I was at the, the Y there, um, and there, the game, actually, I don't know if, if both of you watch basketball. Yeah, we, um, I think every Canadian was watching that season. After they got into, like, the semifinals, we were like, oh, yeah, it's happening. Well, you should have been there. If you're a basketball <laughs> fan, as you said, you're a Raptors fan, it was packed, Michael. I'm telling you, every, every game. The, the Mississauga Square, the Toronto Square, yeah. there'll be so many people. But you, you actually, watched it from the other side. Actually, sorry, I, I shouldn't stay. So I was in Wisconsin when they were playing the Bucks. So when the Raptors mm -hmm. were playing the Bucks, right. and there was one game in particular where the Bucks were leading. I forgot by how many points, but the Bucks were leading. And I'm pretty sure I was the only Canadian there. And <laughs> so I, w I was at the Y or the gym, and this guy walks up to me and said, oh, we're winning, eh? Or he didn't say eh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot exactly what he said. He's like, oh, good game, or we're winning. And uh, so that's where my Canadian came out. Um, <laughs> 
I had a so I, I had a, a maple leaf. I have a maple leaf keychain on my set of keys, and I slowly tucked it in my pocket because I was afraid <laughs> of what he would find out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I was like, "Yeah, great game." Um, but what happened was in that same game, the Raptors caught up and they actually beat the Bucks, and so everyone in the facility was so disappointed, and I'm cheering to myself inside because I didn't want to reveal to them that I wasn't a Bucks fan. Yeah, you don't want to reveal you were the imposter in the crowd. Yeah, <laughs> imposter. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, I actually watched the final game um, in Hamilton oh, at the uh, First Ontario cool. Center. So that was a lot of fun. Okay. So moving to uh, more uh, serious topic um, in the United States on Tuesday. I'm sure uh, a lot of you have heard that there was a shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, eight people were killed, and then six of them were uh, Asian women. So Mike Wong, you're you're Asian. where, which country are you from, by the way? Uh, you mean ethnically? Yeah. Um, so ethnically, I'm Chinese. Okay. Yeah, me too. So I, I just wanted to get your opinion on what's happening right now over there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm, ju- I'm just, I'm, I don't think I'm going to call it just a U.S. problem because I think there are also increases in, in anti-Asian hate crime that has also increased, unfortunately, in Canada as well, um, and maybe even other parts of the world. Um, I haven't followed too much in other parts of the world, um, but this is something that actually resonates with me a lot because um, I experienced a lot of discrimination and racism actually when I was in Wisconsin, which actually led me to eventually leave. Um, so, so what happened in Atlanta? Um, it it really bothered me and it really upset me um and it was that night actually i think i was scrolling through tiktok and there was just so much right so many people so many tiktokers i think they're called their creators um were talking about it and it was really nice to hear you know asian canadians asian americans speaking out against what happened and I think it was labeled it wasn't labeled a hate crime yet is my understanding um and but it's also I think disheartening to see the rise of anti-Asian hate crime in North America and that it's not talked about so um it's I don't you know I haven't seen too much coverage in the news um most of it is in social media um, and some news outlets have talked about it, but it, it's not it's not publicized, I feel. Um, the Atlanta, what happened in Atlanta was more public than some of the other incident, incidences that have happened. And I find that so disheartening, um, especially as an Asian Canadian. Um, but I'm also glad that the Asian community uh, is starting to speak up about, you know, the racism not just now, I mean, anti-Asian racism has existed even before COVID-19, right? But I feel 
and maybe it's a cultural thing. This is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, is why, why anti-Asian racism isn't really talked about. And I wonder if it's because many Asians, and perhaps for cultural reasons, don't report and don't talk about it. So therefore, there is a misrepresentation or a, um, a misunderstanding that it's not very severe. Right, but I think I can probably speak, um, I, I think I can say this pretty safely that if, and I'm saying Asian in general, right, so the Eastern Hemisphere, um, I think most of us have probably experienced some form of racism in our lifetime, being born and or raised or spent time, even in Canada, right, not just the United States. You know, I, I sometimes call it the perpetual foreigner syndrome where you're constantly asked, where are you from? Where are you really from? What is your, you know, what is your, you know, I'll sell my name is Mike or Michael. And I've been asked, what's your real name? Like, well, Michael. Um, so I laugh at it because I think, I don't know, at this point, like what else can I do? Um, but I know that I've been definitely speaking out more about my experiences and I think, um, and definitely talking more about anti-Asian racism is something that you know, I'm doing more of. And so any, so long story short, I'm, I'm really glad that the Asian community is starting to speak up more about the, the discrimination uh, that we have faced. Mm -hmm. So if you're comfortable, would you be willing to share exactly what um, incidents happen, happened in Wisconsin that led you to leave? I'll share a little bit. Um, I've been called racial slurs more times in probably the two years I was there than I would say most of my adult life here in Canada. Um, I was, you know, when I was younger in elementary school, you know, that was thrown around quite a bit. But um, as an adult, I can't remember the last time that it happened in Canada. Um, but that, you know, that, that happened a few times in the United States. And there were a lot of microaggressions, you know, people staring all the time. Every time I would walk somewhere, a bazillion eyes would be on me. Um, there were a couple of instances, few instances, um, where I was ref essentially refused service at a restaurant. So it wasn't explicit, but what happened was, for instance, there was one time where I went to, I went to a restaurant with uh, two of my colleagues, both of whom are also um, people of color. And we were told that there would be a long wait for a seat and that we would have, yeah, we would have to wait a long time. And they said, oh, our seats are all packed. But you look in the back and there were five empty seats at the back. So I don't know why we decided to eat there, but we decided we asked how long's the wait, and they said 45 minutes. After 45 minutes, we went for a walk, um, but and sorry, after 45 minutes, we didn't receive a call. And when we went back, they said, "Oh, we tried calling you multiple times, but no one picked up." You know, we checked our cell reception, nothing. We didn't get a single call. So, and that's happened more more times than I'd like. Um, there were times where I sat at a restaurant. This was a restaurant actually directly across from the campus, where. I was with my colleagues, uh, all of whom were white. It was a small group, and I was the only one who wasn't given a menu. So those were just some examples. Yeah, that's 
definitely really tough to deal with. Um, I'm sorry, you had to go through that. Yeah, Personally, 100%. Yeah, go for it, Rebecca. I was going to ask, what would you think? Uh, well, personally, I've been lucky that this has only happened a few times to me. And um, to be honest, I grew up um, very, like, I've had the same friends for a very long time. So when I went to university, it was kind of like a lot of people that I didn't know. Um, and then, you know, just remarks here and there, like I was walking down campus and the car rolled down their, rolled down their window and was like, go make me sushi or like something like that. And this one time I wanted to join, <laughs> I wanted to join a club and then they didn't, they told me, sorry, we don't like athletic Asian girls. <laughs> so I just didn't join the club. <laughs> but yeah. Just stuff like that. What about you, Ali? Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I can, first of all, I want to say thank you guys for sharing. I actually think it's important that the, the more people talk about it, the less it becomes like a subject nobody wants to touch. And I also, that's why I appreciate people sharing it on Instagram and just opening up the discussion. You know, that's like one of the most important steps because then people get exposed to it. People know what's going on for real. I didn't have a lot of information of a lot of this, the stuff that was going on. And then you guys also sharing it. I think it's very important. So I appreciate that too. Of course, it was a horrible event that happened. Um, but it's good that we're in 2021 where this stuff can't slide anymore. You know what I mean? So people will talk about it. People will want something to happen. People will want action. So um i appreciated that a lot um and yeah man like as michael also said this is not like a usa thing it's it happens in canada too but sometimes we don't look at it or we overlook it because canada is known as that country that everything is bubbly everything is good there's no issues but it does happen all the time it's definitely happened to me before and you know as someone that just came to the country i didn't even speak english like I could tell when people, you know, will make judgments or they would do certain things differently with me or because of this color of my skin that, that, that I also had to go through that. And it's the worst feeling ever. I don't ever want anyone to go through that because something you can't control. So that's also my thoughts on it. I think more and more people should like speak up about that because uh it, it's very common. It's, be, it's, it's very common. Before people didn't talk about it, now it's being exposed. So I really appreciate you guys also talking about it. I don't know if you feel the same way, Mike, but I've always kind of been taught to, you know, not speak up about things, just like let it pass and just like focus on my own stuff and focus on my own goals and not care about like what other people say and do. Um, have you been raised that way as well? Yeah, and this is where I mentioned, I think, I think it may be a cultural thing. Um, I think, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, I think part of the reasons why Asians, and I, I know I'm generalizing, um, but Asians don't speak up about some of the, the, the discrimination that we face. And I wonder if it goes back to some of the, the cultural or the, the cultural practices or cultural pieces um, around, for example, of around not disrupting the harmony. And I, I wonder if part of that is because 
you know, uh, it is a collectivistic culture. Um, and I've had some great conversations with a colleague of mine in, in, in the United States who um, does some work in multicultural psychology. And he, he has a hypothesis, which I've been thinking a lot about, is this idea of being a guest. And in, I don't know if, it, I don't know if this is true for all collectivistic societies, um, but at least in, in, in Chinese culture, and I think in a lot of East Asian cultures, um, there's this idea where um, we have to be polite when we're in someone's home. Right. So, for example, we don't ask for things, even if you're thirsty, for example, you, and, and the host asks you, do you want water? No, 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 I'm fine, even though if you really want it. Um, and so I wonder part of it, and this is his theory, and I've been kind of thinking a lot about this, is I wonder if being in North America and maybe, you know, the, the being perpetually also labeled as a foreigner, I wonder if that has an impact on us where we we always feel we're indebted to people in North America and so therefore we don't speak up because um, we're sort of the guest here and you know and we don't want to get in your way we don't want to make you uncomfortable wow that's a very interesting thing that like I, I hadn't even thought about it like that but I, that definitely resonates with me as well yeah I've never thought about it that way as well and I can I can also see how how it works because i totally understand the thing where oh if you go into someone's home you don't ask for anything you stay quiet you agree with everything that they say if they offer you something no no no, no thank you i don't want it <laughs> even if you want it yeah. yeah even if you want it even like when you're going to a restaurant it's like oh i'll pay no i'll pay so i'll then <laughs> yeah. after you like sneak in the back and pay with your credit card it's always always like trying to be humble and trying to yeah. Um, be like the perfect guest. Yeah, and and even thinking about you know when you mentioned being humble, I, I'm very uncomfortable by compliments. I don't know how to react when someone compliments me. No, I also feel that <laughs> that's that's also me. yeah for sure. So something I learned, I think, is that I I didn't realize um, how much, even though you know of course I, I I'm Asian and I'm Chinese. I didn't understand how much my culture has impacted the way that I behave. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where I've been interested in sort of intercultural communication um, in, in the last couple of years is I don't know necessarily if being Asian in a North American society is actually very beneficial, if that makes sense, because there's a cultural clash in many ways, even, even, even though we may not be aware of it. Yeah. But, um yeah so do you want to do you want to introduce your new segment that you have you <laughs> spill the tea this what? is you <laughs> i am not introducing this segment we can we can put out this segment if you want <laughs> but, i'm <laughs> curious now no, def, it'll be a quick segment but i want rebecca to talk about it because <laughs> welcome to our new segment called spill the tea with mike wong <laughs> he has no idea what we're about to ask him. I have no <laughs> idea. It's gonna be so uncomfortable for him, but go for it. So you know how in high school we had the popular kids, the cliques, the drama kids. So I just wanted to know: Does that exist in the BHSC staff? 
Oh, I don't know if I can answer that question. <laughs> I can't wait to hear We already know the answer. <laughs> the audience, I'm rubbing my hands right now. I just want to know what is the answer to this one. I already have some ideas. I want to know the yes truth. Or no question. No. I mean, the question I won't answer. I'm going to stay silent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Would you consider yourself in the popular group? <laughs> <laughs> I also won't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Michael is just breezing through these questions. Wow, it's okay. We all know the answers to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, which cohort is the best cohort? Wow, you're gonna make me answer that question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know this. Like, I don't know your cohort, and I don't know. Like, I don't. Twenty twenty two. I've only met a few individuals in your cohort and the second cohort. Um, I don't know. I don't want. I don't want to pick favorites. <laughs> okay. But I, I, what I will say is, I know the most people in the fourth year cohort, and I know quite a few in the first year cohort. I feel because when I went to Wisconsin, I missed out on your cohort, and well, not really missed out because you know here we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Quality over quantity. Ali and I over all. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, we represent all of third years. For sure. Okay, okay. Not like cohort specifically, but who do you like to teach the best? Like freshmen or seniors or sophomores? Like who do you like to teach mm. the best? Who's the most interesting? I, I think they all have their uniqueness to them. Mm -hmm. I think first year students are... One of my favorite courses to teach was psychobiology. And I used to have so much fun with that class. And I think for a number of different reasons, um, I think it's one of the only classes where everyone is together, mm -hmm. right? It's a large lecture-based course and everyone, like the entire cohort is there. And because it's so big and um, I guess the fourth year students will know this the best because they've, you know, they've had me, is I make really bad dad jokes, like, all the time, and there's just something about having a lot of people in the room laughing at a really bad joke, and it's so contagious, <laughs> so I, and I have, I used to do a lot of uh, really embarrassing Pokemon references, um, but I try to slip in some other classes I do, but it's not as much of an opportunity, so because of that, I really enjoyed teaching first year because um, I think it's also the beginning of their journey. Um, and it's, and it's, I think it's so, it's such a privilege to be part of, you know, their transition from high school to university. Um, but I think every year has their sort of own nuances and they're, they're, it's fun in a different way. Um, so the one thing I really enjoyed about teaching in the child health specialization is I get to see um, some students for four years, right? So if I had them in my first year inquiry class, right, and if I, even if I don't, I see them in second year, but I see sort of the growth that they, that they, that they have over the, the four years. And it's so amazing. And again, I call this a privilege is by the time students are in their fourth year, you know, you see the students practicing those, you know, the seven P's that we talk so much about, right? You know, per, whether it's personal awareness or collaboration, and it's and it's so rewarding to see it all come full circle, and see students, you know, actually advocating or or being aware of group process. Um, so I don't know. I can't pick a favorite year because it's all part of the journey, um, and I think there's something rewarding to be said about each year.
And so I'm really so grateful to be back um, before the fourth year cohort graduates because, you know, I worked with them when they were just entering university hadn't seen them for two years and now I get to be part, you know, of their final year and, um, and some of them I get to work very closely with. Um, and so it's been so amazing to see, you know, their growth and their transformation over the four years. And it's something I'm so honored to be a part of. Wow. So in conclusion, he likes first years the best. <laughs> <laughs> I like everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No favorites. <laughs> No favorites, but first year. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and also, Michael, can we can we do something about psychobio? That that course needs to come back somehow. Like somehow. Yeah, that the Work same course. It. I don't know. I think you have the power, Michael. You can, you know, working on a phone call and just be like, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a topic that I want to, you know, in some capacity, you know, bring back. I don't know what that's going to look like yet, um, and. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what that looks like. But I'm, I'm very, very interested in doing something with psychobiology. It's a course I really miss. And it's sort of, it is my favorite course, to, one of my favorite courses to teach. And then I brought it to Wisconsin. And, you know, I love that stuff. Great. Okay. So we've kept you here long enough. Um, that's going to be the end of our episode. Do you have any last remarks? I'm terrible with last remarks, <laughs> but no, thank you. Thank you both very much for inviting me here. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for coming. I think the conversation was really good. I really enjoyed listening to you talk and Rebecca also, and also your experiences in the U.S. Um, so yeah, I really, really appreciate you. Round of applause for Michael. And yeah, with that being said, happy Monday, everyone. And we'll see you guys next week. Take care.